Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the Runner's World Podcast. Hello and welcome to Episode 5 of the Runner's World Podcast. Each month we'll be bringing you the latest training advice, news, and interviews from the wide world of running. I'm Rick Pearson, the Runner's World Section Editor, and I'm here with Ben Hobson, the Digital Editor. Ben, what have we got coming up this month? This month we have The Guardian's Kate Carter discussing marathon running. Uh, we're speaking to the runner and author Johnny Muir, whose new book The Mountains Are Calling details the history of mountain running in Scotland. And RW's very own commissioning editor Kerry McCarthy is popping in to talk about diversity in distance running. Lovely. So uh, so what have, you, what have you been up to this month, Ben? Because we missed you uh, last time around on episode four. I had to take a break from the intensity of podcasting. <laughs> no, no. Uh, yeah, I was sad, actually. I missed out, but it gives me a whole world of stuff to catch you up on. Well, uh, tell us. Tell us more. Well, I ran a marathon. The London Marathon? The London Marathon. That really hot race. Yeah. Had a lovely time. Yeah, you enjoyed it? Really much. Yeah, 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 very much. It was good. I mean, I had no agenda, so I think I had the freedom of just running a race yeah. how I wanted in rather than anything else, which I... I think is how a lot of people do it, but I've never really done that. Yep, so yep. that was that was nice to do and got round. Um, I'm now training for a triathlon. What? No swear, <laughs> no swear words on the show, Ben. Okay. Um, which I, have, I used to do quite a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, and I haven't done one for a few years, so it's nice. The variety is, is good. I've been up doing... From, right. from a sort of training perspective. Yeah, yeah, really, really nice. I feel like just... It doesn't feel overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Which I felt like with marathon stuff does, because that wasn't really my thing, and this is way more my thing. So this is good. Okay, well, that sounds um, good. And what about you? Well, I went to the Silly Isles uh, a couple of weekends ago for um, a swim run by a company, you know, the Urtilur. I do. Those sort of Swedish eccentric. The so, origins of exactly. So this was the, one of their kind of uh, events, not their Stockholm one, but uh, one on the Silly Isles, which are an amazing sort of set of islands just off Cornwall, about twenty six miles off. Um, and it's an amazing little event. You kind of compete in, in pairs. You're attached by a bungee cord. So it's a real test, not only of your endurance, but your friendship, your partner. <laughs> wow. It was about uh, only about 12K of running and about 3K of swimming. And it's very much kind of run, swim, run, swim, multiple transitions. Our transitioning was, was, an air, was a, a weak point right. for us. So there's lots of like putting on the hand paddles because you're allowed paddles and stuff. Um, but yeah, it made me think that I would like to do a few more actually i think the summer months lend themselves maybe to these slightly more uh, eccentric challenges for sure i i've actually been doing a bit of open water swimming at my local reservoir oh right and i've noticed this the the swim run 
get up. Yes. It's very specific. Mm-hmm. I'd not noticed it before with the, the float strapped to the leg. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And all the different bits. It's very. It's. I mean, I was. I was intrigued, and then talking to you about it, I was like, "This could work. Oh. I could try this out." Well, yeah, yeah. Tell you what, let's let's sign ourselves up. All right. You bring the bungee cord. I'll bring the paddles. Oh, I'm not running with you. <laughs> it's far too quick. <laughs> and that'll swim, yeah. Yeah, I yeah, reckon. yeah. So I think that, but that's what you want in these events. You right. want a bit of, um, you know, if, if one of you's better, then you can pull the other one along, literally, quite physically, with, with a bungee right. cord. Good. But yeah, so that's what I've been up to. And then I'm going to do the uh, Great South Run, uh, ten mile in in October. Um, haven't done a ten mile event in ages, and I quite like it as a distance because it feels yeah. like it's a bit about speed, but it's also, um, you know, there's a real there's an endurance aspect to it as well, and you can kind of just go for it and i'm just kind of like well, let's see what i can do you know definitely want to try and get a pb which would be anything quicker than 106 and yeah, threaten pretty, the hour i want to threaten the hour pretty rump. well talking of hours there's another one i did an, an an hour specific race the other day right so you just from you have an hour to run as far as you can as far, like as in away the, from home in, <laughs> from from your troubles no <laughs> from the start line bang go an hour, the clock starts counting down. Right. A mile loop. This is an Adidas run. Okay. I'm going to forget what they're called, but it's the city runs. Yes. An hour, a mile loop in central London, and you had an hour wow, to do as great. many of them as you could. And there was timing mats every point one of a mile, I think. Right. How'd you so go? How'd 8.3 miles. Well, that's all right. That sounds pretty good. It was fine. Yeah, decent. I mean, for, off the back of injury and all sorts of excuses. Yeah. <laughs> but, it's yeah. Incredible time, given your phantom injuries. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. This is the Runner's World Podcast. We are delighted to have Kate Carter in the studio with us today. Kate, some of you may know from her writing exploits at The Guardian, but more importantly as a prolific runner herself. Prolific. Prolific. (laughs) Uh, Thank you very much for joining us, Kate. It's lovely to be here. I think the word my mum uses is is obsessive rather than prolific. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, slightly more negative. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, your prolific running, um, you did manage to do the sub-three-hour marathon this year after a, sort of a few attempts yeah i mean how did, how did it feel to finally like smash that barrier um i think about 10 percent excitement and about 90 percent relief <laughs> just oh thank god for that um just that sort of that, i mean i'm not gonna claim that i'm not doing more marathons but knowing that i don't have to put myself through that with everybody waiting for you to say did you do it or not did you did yeah. you it's just horrible so now I can just do whatever. I mean, no one cares. Yeah, I mean, no you... one cared anyway. But <laughs> well, I think they did. I think I did. I think I, I think I, we were discussing this earlier, and I think that there's a certain amount of exposure that social media brings to these events, and mm. like when people are aiming for a target, you kind of keep a bit to yourself. But there's always a bit that kind of ekes out into the ether, and people see what you're attempting. Yeah. But I think that there was like a growing pressure on you almost to sort yeah, of. Yeah, and actually, what was interesting is um my coach uh tom craggs i think you guys know um he when we sort of first locked in that i was going to do seville marathon and we sort of got towards the start where you do the kind of like about 12 weeks right come on we're going to refocus on this he said i want you to think about who you talk about with this with because i because that was exactly his point that there's a sort of pressure on you if you're kind of on social media and people read stuff that you write that however silly you feel for feeling that as pressure it is you know that's what you feel it as that's what it is so I didn't really tell anyone that I was doing it I told like I think I told you mm-hmm. random and then like a few very few people I got it out and my, yeah yeah and <laughs> thumb screws um <laughs> uh like obviously my family but that was pretty much it I didn't mention it on the blog I 
deliberately didn't mention it on Twitter or Instagram or anything like that. I didn't post the, you know, the kit, kit layout pictures or the kind of, and even the training sessions in the run up that were really obviously marathon training sessions. When they went on Strava, I would just sort of budget. Yeah. Oh, me, just <laughs> yeah. another 21 mile yeah, run. Yeah, I just no fancy the 23 mile run with some blocks at marathon pace for the hell of it, you know? <laughs> Who doesn't? Do you think that that's something that you would encourage other people to do if there's like an elusive running goal? Yeah. To actually go and take yourself away from the kind of like the public eye? Yeah. And just, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think there's different ways of putting that pressure on yourself. And it might be that you've sort of stated it on Twitter and you feel like people are waiting. It might be just your club mates. It might be your, your, you know, your other half, whatever it is. And the other kind of pressure that people often feel when they have those arbitrary targets is the sort of tyranny of the watch mm. so like try running without a watch um and a, a friend i saw a friend of mine at a race yesterday and he's been um running park runs for the last couple of years and hasn't been able to break 20 he's got a pb quicker than that from a while ago right. but he's just not been able to break 20 and he went out the other week and he was like just not going to wear the watch, not going to wear the watch at all, just didn't even sort of not look at it, just completely left it behind. And he ran like 1940 mm. and he said it felt easier because he wasn't constantly kind of having that little... Completely. Oh, is it on, is it on? Especially shorter races. Mm. You can get really tied up in that. Yeah. Like, oh, quick check, quick check. And yeah. Like, the amount of time that you're probably just changing head angle and like not actually thinking about running because yeah. you're just flicking at your watch the whole time. Yeah, and, the, and sometimes like... I mean, the, I um, did a part run on Saturday and I was pacing a um, friend for a, a PB and they have uh, K markers in the part run. Right. But someone had told me, a friend of mine who was also doing it, told me don't don't believe the first one because it's always in the wrong place. And lo and behold, we, we should have gone through in about four minutes mm. and I looked at my watch as I went past it and it was 3.35. And I thought, that's a pretty punchy <laughs> first K for a... Yeah, so... But it was completely in the wrong place. He said he reckoned it was like, for him, 20 seconds out. Right. So that I mean, probably about right. So yeah. if you had been not known that you'd have been either oh my god i'm gonna break the world record yeah. or been really panicked by it but yeah. if you don't know and you're just running just, at your you yeah. know then it's Given, fine yeah, it's fine yeah. and also i think it, it freaks you out when you think that you have to run every kilometer every mile of a marathon at exactly yeah. the same pace because in your head you've got to break that goal um i've got to run underneath you know I don't know, if you're trying to bake 40 for 10K, four-minute Ks. Mm. And if one of those Ks isn't under four, you think, that's it, it's gone. And you sort of let yourself come back and just go, oh, well, it was still a good try. Yeah, definitely. But yeah. if you didn't know that one was, you know, 402, but then the other, either side of it were 357, you, you wouldn't feel mm. it. You wouldn't be able to tell. Right. I think you're right. I think also some people can run faster than they think they can. And mm. I think a watch can hold people back a little bit. I ought to be running... I'm like a seven-minute mile person. Yeah. Oh, I'm going faster than my watch tells me I'm going faster than that. Yeah. I'm not really thinking about how that feels, Yeah. but my watch tells me that I'm going at 6.50, so therefore I should, I should like take my foot off the gas. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely kind of a mental barrier there. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah. And either not wearing it or... I've got really good at wearing... Because like I'm you know, a data geek. I like to look at the data afterwards, but yeah. I've got really disciplined about wearing it and just not looking at it once. So I wore it, I did a 10-mile race yesterday, and I wore it, and I stopped it at the finish, but I did not look at it once. I mean, my splits were all over the place. It's probably a good job I didn't. But, um, but some people, I think, struggle with that. I've yeah. got a friend who I basically had to he, to sort of bully him into doing this because I knew it was going to run faster. So he put um, gaffer tape over it. Right. So Because it's a bit harder. It's just like a little barrier to, to yeah. cheating. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I used to be really kind of evangelical about not wearing a watch, and then I realised I became the person who was asking people the time they are. <laughs> oh, right. So it would be like, you know, oh, like 10, 10 miles into like the half marathon, and I'd be like, 
oh mate, yeah, are we on for like, you know, that? and it'd be like, yeah, yeah, we are. And I realised that actually I'm just sort of throwing yeah. the responsibility onto other runners. Yeah. What pace are we running at? Oh, right. Oh, cool, great. Yeah. I'll just run with you if that's right. Yeah. <laughs> this is the Runner's World Podcast. Um, so that's interesting. So I was looking for tips for people who are like um, going after an elusive running goal. Mm. And I think one of them might be to take yourself away from social media maybe and the yeah. other one might be a watch is there anything else that you think about that actually has helped you i think we tend to get obsessed as runners like doing races a lot you you get a sort of pre-race ritual um where you have you know the same dinner and the same breakfast and yeah. everything and there's you know there's a lot to be said for that you should, certainly shouldn't go out and start eating a curry for breakfast before a race but i think there's also when you when you get to a mental block about something where you you know you've tried the same thing over and over again and it hasn't worked then it is time to try something different i mean mm. food's a bad example because that's definitely not not <laughs> where to experiment but just try a, a different type of race or um you know try kind of adding a completely new thing to your running routine you know take up i don't know pilates or swap an easy run for swimming or just sort of mix it up a bit so yeah. you feel like you've done something differently and i think that sort of stays in your head a bit when you come to do your new crack at that goal mm. you kind of think this isn't going to be the same as last time because it hasn't the whole process has not been the same as last time yeah um and you know, you don't have to go and, like, I mean, for a marathon, you know, normally you'd run your half marathon and you'd sort of use it as a bit of a benchmark. And if it was good, it would be you know, a good sign. If it's bad, you know, God, it's terrible. And I didn't really do, in the run-up to Seville, because Seville is so early in the year in February, there's not a lot of races in January, February mm-hmm. that you can kind of do as as testers. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of cross-country and trail runs and stuff, but that's not really going to be kind of helpful for times. So I didn't really do much in the run-up to it mm. either. And that that was not a bad thing, I think, because I've done enough races that I don't need race practice. Yes. Um, yeah. So just trying trying different things, sort of just tweaking stuff, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Freedom, bit of freedom. Yeah. <laughs> I think you know people get very headstrong about what is right or wrong. Yeah. I think that's where someone just being a bit like, hey, relax. Yeah. You can just you know be a bit flexible and try this and see if it works. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We were talking with uh, Paul Tonkison last month, and he was saying he did sub three marathon and then went on a kind of extended twelve month <laughs> victory lap, yeah. where he kind of gained half a stone and the rest of it. But I don't sense that's been your approach. I think you still have ambitions over the marathon to be faster. Yeah, because I, I listened to your your podcast <laughs> with him, and he was like, he was, you know, there's a different. There's people who they go for a goal, they've done the goal, and then it's like, yep, yeah, that's ticked. Right, I'll look to d- different things, different mm. goals, different distances, whatever. I. Yeah, I, I got myself three and then I was immediately like, all right, well, 2.55 then. Um, that's just kind of how, I'm, how I am, I suppose. Right. Um, and and, and I mean, it's nice to know that that feels less kind of pressured because yes. I know I can run a sub three now, so that's fine. And anything under that's great. And it, But it's not this kind of weird, totally arbitrary barrier that I have to break. It's just, yes. I'd quite like to go for a PB. That's basically it. Yeah. I actually might you might run better like that actually. Yeah. Maybe yeah. Yeah. Would um, you change your approach? Not radically. Um I know there are things I could do better or more of. I'm I'm a bit rubbish at sort of doing all the kind of core and strength and conditioning stuff that I could do. I mean you don't have to do a huge amount of it, but I skip I never skip runs, but I do skip that stuff. Right. Um 
I, 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 I tend to be quite, when I know there's a deadline, a marathon coming, I tend to be quite good. I do my homework. But the sort of rest of the time, I'm mm. a bit like, Meh. I'm tired. I just want to my dinner. Yeah. Are you going to the gym to do the sort of strength conditioning no, stuff or at home? Yeah. No, I do it all, almost all at home because um, I spend enough time running and then I've got kids. So, you know, it's just sort of easier to do it at home. Yeah. And I can, you know, because then I can do it after they're in bed or yeah. while they watch something or, you know, there's no kind of... And then I'm just faffing around getting to the gym and back and stuff. It's just wasted time. I know what you mean. Really. I know what you mean. I think the kind of home circuit. Yeah. If you've got a few props, kind of like a couple of kettlebells yeah. or something. Yeah, we've got a garden full of kettlebells. I think we might have a kind of world-leading collection of kettlebells. <laughs> I can lift two of them. Right, uh, the, the other ones, if they need to be moved, I have to get my husband to actually move them. <laughs> literally can't lift them up. But my, when my... Um, Oldest daughter was little, really little. She got really obsessed with the kettlebells in the garden. She used to run out and try and lift them up and stuff. Right. And, uh, and so I, my mother-in-law knitted her a kettlebell. <laughs> she made her this kind of weighted kettlebell with like a sort of bell inside it. I think I'd use that one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's about my weight. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah. Oh, the easier session today. I was on the knitted one. Yeah. <laughs> Still a bit sore the next day, though, a bit dumped. Because yeah. <laughs> Ben was pointing out to me before you arrived that I, I kind of forget this. That you, you're not a lifelong runner. It's not something that you were like really no. good at running growing up. It was like a no, later I, thing, right? Yeah, I started when... So I've got two kids. I yeah. started when the little one was a baby. Um, and I hadn't really done any running. I did do a triathlon about 10 years ago or something. Right. But the running was a bit I hated um, and didn't really you know, do anything afterwards. And then, yeah, so I had two kids and then I basically had used to have a window about half an hour in the evening where my husband would come home and but there was sort of half an hour before the, you know, ritual starts. Yeah. And you can't, I mean, I, I would probably, at that point, I would probably have preferred to go for a swim or even a bike ride or something, but you just don't have time or at least it's completely pointless doing, you know, that amount of exercise because it's yeah. probably about 30 seconds of the pool and you're out again yeah. um so I, went, I started the catch to 5k um i mean i really couldn't run till the end of the block i right. remember like literally not being able to run to the end of the block and it's a short block as well <laughs> um and uh yeah and i just sort of went from there and i think it, it's not an uncommon experience for um i think mean, in my experience particularly women once they've had kids to get really into running because of the, the sort of headspace and the mm. The, the alone time as well. Yeah. Um, just being able to be by yourself, which is kind of rare when you, you know, spend your day with a baby and a small child. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. I don't think the time thing as well. Mm. As you say, like half an hour yeah. running is, is a decent amount yeah. of time running, but anything else that involves a changing room or yeah. kit or something faffy. Yeah, or yeah. even like, and it's also, it's it's sort of always, even an easy run, it's kind of a steady state of exercise, isn't it? You're kind of exercising, your heart rate's almost immediately going to be into a mm. exercise zone. Yeah. As there's almost nothing else that really does that. I mean, I suppose it's a, a spinning class or something like that, but then you, again, you have to go, go to yeah, it. somewhere. Um, I was having a random conversation with my dad the other day who was asking me how many, like, what's the ratio between running and cycling in that how many hours of cycling would have to equate to doing one hour of running and mm. I, I don't know i mean you're and you're a cyclist you know but i was thinking like maybe three to one or something yeah I think it, that, right? it's about that I yeah mean, it's and it's a, again i mean much like running it depends on effort but yeah mm. i mean i can go out on a bike and really hammer myself for an hour and i'll look at calorie burn and be yeah. like oh i mean that's like a, <laughs> it's like a 5k <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well done you've bent half a kilo. yeah exactly yeah. so it's, yeah. yeah sometimes it's it's a bit yeah, running is one of the best for that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it does sort of ruin you though for other sports because yeah. of that, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I remember. Um, 
I was still playing football when I was first getting into running, and mm-hmm. I was a bit like, my marathon training, I'm going to be so much better than the rest of people at football. <laughs> and all it meant was I was a guy who went and got the ball when it went for a throw-in. Because <laughs> you'd long distance. Just amazing kind of 70% speed. And I was worse. I, I, like, I was just kind of like... Well, the one thing yeah. that marathon training makes you really good at is running in that direction and yeah. that direction alone. So being yeah, sort of straight football, lines. I'm sorry, yeah. uh, the ball might be over there, but I can't turn, I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, was, yeah, very, very good when the ball wasn't on the pitch. Yeah. Very kind of obedient, kind of go and collect it. <laughs> it's funny, yeah, it wasn't kind of very specific. for, But you get that, you get that. And this is a little bit off topic, but you get lots of ex-sports um, stars. And I think footballers like Michael Owen and stuff try, trying marathons. And mm. they're normally quite bad, actually. yeah. Well, that's di- I mean, well, I always say football because footballers are sprinters, essentially, aren't they? Yeah. It's all sprints. I mean, it's quite a lot of little sprints. But do you ever see those ridiculous claims? Sometimes you get some website that will go, so-and-so in the NFL oh, the or whatever. Or now in the World happening. Cup. Yeah, they'll yeah. be like, he ran those, he did that pass and then ran quicker than you saying Bolt. It's like, no, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> he, firstly, it wasn't a standing start. Secondly, he reached something approximate to that speed for about one second yeah. in the middle yeah. for, for about five metres. <laughs> it's just yeah. not the same thing. Yeah, it's just a headline, isn't it? Yeah. Stuff. <laughs> there was a thing about the distances the ref covers just last oh, week. It was about 10k. It's quite good, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's because I think they've they've all put trackers or whatever on footballers, and and they mostly cover about ten k. Although there's some of them that sort of intervals, ten k of intervals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Over ninety, well, over ninety minutes with a big break in the middle as well. (laughs) I have very little sympathy. (laughs) They get paid a lot of money. Yeah, they get paid. So when when they get to the end of it, oh, they're so tired. Well, get fitter then. Like five hundred grand a minute or something. Yeah. If I got paid that much, I, I reckon I could smash out. I, a piece of I, would, I would try and be as fast as you say. Yeah, Bolt. exactly. Yeah. This is the Runners World podcast. So it's coming up to Runners World's twenty fifth anniversary, basically. Oh, yeah. So part of this, I've been looking back through the annals of uh, of Runners World and the letters, and looking at some kind of recurring themes. And um, one of them is heckling both for men and women actually and it seems very prevalent in the early 90s that when runners went out they would regularly be insulted abused physically hurt by um groups of people it was and it's not something that i have experienced that much but do you feel like that is still a, a big issue facing runners in 2018 um well certainly i don't know a woman who hasn't been heckled or yeah. you know had a pro- inappropriate or you know sort of even well-meaning but uncalled for comments mm. um by people and mansplaining yeah yeah i've been mansplained by a few people <laughs> like how to run <laughs> uh there was one great example um this guy i was running i think i was running home from work and this guy was i saw he he was at a light so i was standing next to him and then we ran off and then i was clearly trying to get past him but he wasn't having any of that and so and this kind of kept happening and then we went, got to the embankment and there was a long long stretch and he was clearly just not having any of this because he kept he kept every time he got to the lights he'd start sort of patronizingly asking me questions about running and stuff right. and like you know have you ever tried you know if you consider doing intervals and things like this <laughs> and um and then he just wouldn't leave me alone and then he was clearly determined not to be dropped as well so i just kind of over, over the course of about 2 hours just kind of put the uh, accelerator on just a little bit just mm. a little bit till we got to Battersea Park at which point I was like you know, I got to about marathon pace or something and got to the end turned around and he was basically 
throwing up in a bush. <laughs> <laughs> that was excellent. That's, I think that's the just should have done some more yeah. intervals, you know, that guy. Yeah, absolutely. But no, but more seriously, I mean, obviously, yeah, you do get quite a lot of it. And I, yeah. I think I, when I run on my own, because mm. I tend to do a lot of running to work and back and it's the same route all the time and it's kind of central London, not not sort of Soho central London, but along the mountain or something, I, I listen to music just to sort of distract me. Yeah. And, and then so I, sometimes I don't. And when I don't, I realise what I'm missing, which is not a lot, is, is all the comments because you don't hear it when you've got music in. Which yeah. is a really good reason to work, listen to music. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. And you know, I just didn't... Like the other day I ran through... Uh, like Farringdon Clerkenwell down to the river and there was about five comments in the, in the course of about two miles just like alright darling you know kind of yeah, yeah. Looking, you know sort of some comment on your legs or something like this yeah. and I don't know maybe that maybe it was just a really bad day or maybe it just happens all the time and I just don't hear it mm. it's just yeah what about you Ben I mean you're, you're like a kind of six foot something bloke do you get heckled I mean, it's happened to me on like maybe three occasions, mm. and it's the only other the time most recently it wasn't in London. It was actually back in Gloucestershire, right? And it was just like lads in a van, and I was wearing short shorts. I think that's like they'll just take anything. Yeah, and I was wearing proper running shorts, and they thought that was hilarious for some reason. And yeah. the thing is, I'm getting on, and my hearing isn't great. <laughs> so <laughs> they shout, they shouted at me. And I just asked them what, because I couldn't... Clearly, they were heckling me, but I was a bit like, I can't hear you, because it was the van and yeah. me running and stuff. So they said it again, still didn't catch it. Yeah. By this point, they kind of stopped the van almost to try and heckle me. <laughs> and it's lost all impact, yeah. because I'm sort of asking them to repeat themselves. Yeah. And, that they, and then they sort of give up. And, let, and I was like, oh, I think that was a heckle. <laughs> I'm not, and I'm not sure what they actually said in the end of it. But anyway, I mean, that's... Yeah. But no, it, I mean, clearly the, the, the difference between my experience mm. running and a harassment is totally different. And I'm very alien, I think, to what other... When people tell me stories about mm. what they've experienced in last year, we actually did a piece on this. And the, the, the stats that we got back were, were a big shock, actually, mm. in terms of female experience when running and I think that's it's a it's baffling honestly I mean I think it has you know to be optimistic about it I imagine it has slightly shifted and it's, it's shifting it's still there's a lot of people who still think that's acceptable but hopefully less mm. as a proportion than 20 30 years ago yeah and partly because I suppose 20 30 years ago your um letters and stuff there was still sort of the beginning of the big yeah, boom exactly. wasn't it so it was probably slightly less common experience yes. Yes. to do less um, big races and things like that, so that mm. people were aware of it as a recreational thing that lots of people did. I mean, everybody now now knows. Some, I mean, there can't be a person alive who doesn't know someone who's doing a five k, ten k, half marathon, yeah. marathon. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Running's become very normal, hasn't it? Yeah. And that, more popular. But yeah. That kind of makes it more bizarre. Because surely, like, if that's the mm. case, of people must know someone, then these men who are shouting things mm. more than likely must have a family member. Who's running? Yeah, or, so, no, or no, to, maybe know a woman even. Yeah, well, I doubt it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> some, of them, some of them, not so sure. Yeah. yeah. So, I don't know. One of the best responses one of the readers said was that um, she would get a comment and she would just encourage people to, oh, come and join me on the run, twenty miles. Let's go and do it. <laughs> Apparently, that was enough to put people off. They actually were like, oh no, no, no you're right. I think I did once actually. Someone once did. It wasn't really a heckle, but it was more a, a sort of. I think it was kind of an. 
elderly person. It might even have been a woman, actually. She says something, oh, looking a bit tired, dear. <laughs> and I was like, I've just run 21 miles, you try it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Try like a fresh at the end of that. <laughs> well, that's almost a kind of caring heckler, isn't it? Yes, it, it was. Yeah. It was It was quite sweet. Like, yeah. 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 And, and you do, I mean, I have had that, you know, a few of that as well. Like, oh, well done, you know, good yeah. for you, that kind of thing. Um, which is sweet. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's nice, isn't it? Yeah. On a more sort of positive note, what are you finding inspiring in running at the minute? Um, oh. Uh, Apart from the Runners World podcast. Well, I mean, can one really see beyond that? Um, <laughs> Rarely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love I love watching running. I love running as a sport, athletics. Mm. Um, so I always love kind of watching the Diamond Leagues and stuff in summer. Yeah. And um, I mean, it, it kind of makes me want to go and run and it, well, also knowing that, you know, I couldn't run 100 metres at the pace they're running mm. 10k in or anything like that. Um, so it's not really kind of directly <laughs> comparable, yeah. but but it still kind of gets me excited. Do you think there's a general, or do you wish there was more interest in the elite side? Yeah. Yeah. I wish there was, because I think there's some brilliant stories that mm. people just don't know. And I think they would, I think that um, it's like, you know, football is all-consuming when it comes to the sports pages and so on. It's just all football, really. Um, and there's not a lot of characters in it. They've all been media-trained to an inch of their lives. They all say exactly the same thing. Everybody has access to the same press conference anyway. Um, so you kind of get, you know, the, the kind of gossip currency stories of a footballer is kind of transfer rumours and the odd sure. kind yeah. of, you know, outrageous thing that kind of goes viral or whatever. Um, whereas... I think athletics is kind of the opposite. There's some, some amazing people with incredible stories who do athletics around the world, yeah. but no one really hears them because they are because it's such a small proportion of the coverage that that people see that there's really only room for X person one in this time. I mean, it's not it's not elite level, but it's a similar thing. So that I'm going to forget names, but the second place lady at the Western States, mm. she's a PhD. She's got a PhD in engineering at yeah. the same time as obviously being a phenomenal ultra runner. And yeah. I was like, I had no idea who this person was, and I don't follow. I don't run ultra, so I I, I take them I think they're hugely motivational I'll read stories and watch videos about ultra yeah. running because I'm just like I think people who run ultras are phenomenal yeah but I don't I'm, I'm not in that culture so I don't know no. the people yeah so I was straight away but I was like well, who is this because yeah, I was just amazing like, characters. I struggled have breakfast and then go for a run and she's, <laughs> yeah. she's yeah. got a PhD I was just like this is insane so I, I, I think that I think stories of that level I think are great yeah or even like Laura Muir you know yeah. she's obviously a bigger name but um yeah, she's done a vet's degree, which is, a, by all accounts, a pretty intense, pretty intense degree thing. to yeah. do, which plenty of people struggle with, mm. you know, just doing. And she's done it while becoming our, you know, greatest athlete, basically. Yeah. Um, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, on, on the topic of ultra running, is that something that you'd like to go into? Give <laughs> no. Are you <laughs> hang out with some people who I do like it? I hang out with way too many people who like it. Yeah. I'm, like, surrounded by them. Yeah. Um, I'm holding out. Uh, no, I, I, I've... I don't know. I've got unfinished business with getting faster, yes. um, you know, for, for me relatively. Um, and I am not prepared to stop that. And I kind of think if you get really into ultra running, that becomes... It's, I mean, I I had this conversation with Darren And, who's um, writing a book about ultra running, and yeah. he's just done the Navarado this weekend. Um, and I uh, was saying, I think ultra running is a different sport. I think it's as different from you know, the kind of races that we do, the sort of middle, um, not middle distance, but kind of, you know, 10K endurance, half marathon, but, but yeah, in the middle. Yeah. Um, it's as different from that as, as a 100-metre sp- sprinter is from, from us. Mm. You know, I mean, it's just completely 
separate sport. Yeah, separate skill set. Yeah, 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 and it's obviously it's you know obviously you have to be super fit mm. um, to do it like really well and everything, but it's just not not running for me. Yeah, it's ultra running, which is separate. Yeah, and I mean, it, you know, it is a lot. A lot of it is isn't running mm. for for the vast majority of people doing a mountain ultra. It's hiking. It's yeah, you know, it's a kind of endurance event of a bit of running, a bit of hiking, a bit of you know, trying to stay awake for six and a half days yeah. in the trot, whatever it is. Um, so yeah, I kind of categorise it as something differently. Yeah, and I'm not interested in doing that at the moment. I'm not never say never, but. Yeah, I think you're right. There. I think it is. It's not just oh, a little bit longer than a marathon. No. They don't, yeah. It's, it's yeah. I mean, there obviously there. are ones that are like I don't know, 50k. Say. And I, um, never see, I never quite so see the point of that. that I wonder awesome. if that's partly just sort of ticking the box. Right, I've done yeah. an ultra. Did now. you see yeah. Steve Way's comrades? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, weirdly, this is the only one that tempts me as comrades, and I think it is basically because it's really a road race. So yeah, I mean, he was his pace was phenomenal. I know. He sub, six, sub six minute mile. Yeah, the whole way. Yeah, 90k. But that's his comfort zone. Yeah. That's the thing yeah, about him. Yeah, yeah, he can yeah. he's like this, you know, he's a pair of lungs on on a pair of legs basically. <laughs> he can just hold that pace for an eternity. Yeah. yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. We I was talking before we started about the the 10-mile race and thinking, "Oh, what could I do over that?" And it could be puts it in perspective. It's like, "Well, I don't think I could have that pace over 10 miles." So, well, there you go. Yeah, a, a mile. There you go for me. <laughs> Steve Way is better than me. Shocker. <laughs> Exclusive to this podcast. This is the Runners World podcast. One of the questions we've been asking uh, our readers this month is where they think running will be in twenty-five years' time. Mm. Looking into your crystal ball, what do you what do you think? Sort of some <laughs> developments that might be around the corner. Um, I think. I don't know. Two, two things that kind of interest me at the moment are very different. Well, firstly, just that I think running is becoming increasingly, as more and more people do it, it's becoming more and more kind of polarised, but not, not with two groups, but like hundreds of groups. Yeah. And there's, you see that with all the kind of new clubs that are coming along, the kind of crews rather than clubs. And yeah. there's sort of all these splintery little groups of people who really strongly identify with that group, but sort of not with any other. Yeah. So I think that's probably going to carry on it's not necessarily a bad thing it's right. just how the kind of landscape it's not even running yeah it's, it's more just the group is the group and running yeah. is secondary yeah, yeah which exactly. is again not a bad thing yeah but absolutely it's, it's, it's sort of social and friendship and everything yeah, those, yeah. those things are really great it's yeah. just you know it's just sort of how it's going but the other thing i think is really interesting is the whole kind of did you see the other day that um the royal college gps are gonna prescribe park run yeah yeah um and i think that is really interesting and i'm potentially like if you got every adult in in the UK who is physically capable of like going doing catch to five k and then sort of doing yeah. park run, you would save the NHS so much more money than a sugar tax would or mm-hmm. does. You know, it would transform. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. People's, it has transformed people's lives. Yeah. I mean, I just, you know, part one is just a fantastic thing. Yeah. And we should, you know, we should be so proud of it coming well, <laughs> from South Africa, you know. Um, yeah, that it kind it's, of... It's English, kind of. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I think what Paul Sinden here has done is just unbelievably um, amazing. And, and uh, yeah, it should be. It should be prescribed. The, the availability yeah. now is just... Yeah. You go on Parkrun and you look for your local race. Yeah. And you can do, like, yeah, I mean, London's, you know, we're living in our little London bubble. But you can do probably, like, four yeah. if you really want it. Like, you could just pick. Yeah. Because it's not... There's every green space. Absolutely. And, more, and if you, you know, don't have one near you when you're cross about it, set it up. Yeah. <laughs> True. Know? Yeah. And then your kids can do the Sunday one. And, you know, it's just amazing what he's done and, and how it's taken off. And I think it has such potential for health as well. Yeah. It's hard, it's hard to think of a better or bigger thing that's happened to recreational exercise, mm. actually, ever, yeah. I think. I, mean, I completely agree, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Kate, thanks very, very much for coming in. My to, pleasure. To the Run and Roll podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's great to hear more about your own running journey and what you're going to plan to do next and the rest of it. So thanks yep. very much. Thank you. For more from Runner's World, head to runnersworld.co.uk. I think to touch upon something that we, that we talked with Kate about is the harassment, mm. specifically for female runners. Um off the back of last year's Running One Female article that we had and the stats around it. Um, I haven't really seen anything new stat-wise of mm. late, but I've seen more and more things on social media about it, particularly sort of video of a woman being attacked in the US, right. outrunning by a driver who pulled over and I, I assume tried to get her in a car. Right. She fought back brilliantly yeah, and he sped off. I just sort of... It's just a... It seems to be a conversation that ebbs and flows, and I feel like it should be flowing more than ebbing. Yeah, right. Uh, but you, you've recently yeah, well, seen I saw a some study. stuff on over at Iron Far. They did a again. It was American uh, stats. So some things feel less applicable here, but yeah, I mean everything's saying that women. Uh, this is about trail running, but felt um, significantly less safe on trails than men do. Um, sort of unwanted following for women was about 16% of had, exp- had experienced that compared mm. to 4% of men had had someone following them they didn't want to. Uh, sexual proposition, 7% of women had that, What only 1% of men. Uh, men are more willing to run on trails at night than women, so 45% of men, 21% of women. So big difference in gender. Yeah. And uh, it's a shame, isn't it? And I wonder what actually what can be done about it because you, you hope that kind of these running routes are... Oh, it should be available to to both sexes. Yeah, I don't think anyone should feel it's different. I mean, trails are very interesting. I mean, urban environments where capacity mm. of people, you sort of feel like, I mean, it shouldn't, but it happens. Whereas on a trail, 
that separation feels slightly more sinister. Like there's a there's an element to that which is yeah, the remoteness to it. Yeah, it? exactly. Yeah. Um, I think it's a conversation we want to continue. Anyone listening who has a story or an opinion on it, please mm. email us at podcast at runnerswell.co.uk. Um, we would like to hear from you um, because we think it's still something that should be discussed. So, uh, yeah, we had some sad news last week. So running lost uh, the great Don Ritchie, who died at age 73. Um, over a stellar career, the Scottish ultra-running legend broke multiple running records over distances from 50k to 200k. Uh, he was nicknamed the Stubborn Scott and uh, showed an almost superhuman ability to push ever onwards, refusing to slow as the miles and pain mounted. Uh, perhaps the greatest of all his achievements was set over the 100k distance. Ritchie's time of 6 hours, 10 minutes, 20 seconds is the equivalent of running back-to-back 238 marathons. Oh, my God. And then another 10 miles at the same pace. Uh, Unsurprisingly, 40 years on, it's still uh, the world record. Um, Writing for Scottish Distance Running History to congratulate Richie on his MBE 23 years ago, uh, ultra-runner Dave Cooper said, The quiet man from Elgin has been a great ambassador for the sport for many years and his superb array of world record performances and steely determination on road and track is in sharp contrast to his modest, self-effacing demeanour. So... Yeah, tribute to Don Ritchie there, uh, running lost a, a genuine hero there. Staying north of the border, our next interview is with Edinburgh-based runner and author Johnny Muir, whose new book The Mountains Are Calling details the history and continuing appeal of Scottish mountain running. We caught up with Johnny to find out about the motivation behind the book and why he thinks runners should head to the UK's high places. This is the Runner's World podcast. Welcome to the, to the Runners World podcast. I want to start by asking you, um, what was the inspiration behind The Mountains Are Calling? I've read a huge amount of literature on hill running over the years, and I thought the sport needed a voice in Scotland. A lot of, a lot of literature on mountain running has been focused around the Lake Districts or around the Bob Graham Round, um, and to me that was really narrow, and I wanted to celebrate the sport in Scotland. And uh, the title of the book, The Mountains Are Calling, emerged as it went on. Really, it wasn't a title I had in my mind. Uh, when I began, um, because the unifying theme of all the people I spoke to and, and all the experiences I had was that people just loved going to the hills to run, and it wasn't really about how fast they ran or how good they were. Uh, what bonded everyone was just a, simply like a brilliant experience of being among Scotland's mountains. And I guess that's something that, that you've got you know, first-hand experience about, you know, alongside the discussion of all the kind of greats of, of mountain running, um, there's also mention of your own challenge, which is uh, the Ramsey Round, which would be familiar to some readers, but essentially it's kind of the Scottish equivalent of the, of the Bob Graham Round. Um, did you feel that it was important for you to kind of throw yourself in, you know, in, with both feet into, into running rather than being just a kind of observer? You wanted to be a kind of participant in uh, the Scottish mountain scene. Yeah, I, I think for me, when I started writing it, or, or certainly writing it seriously, I, I think two things were important to me. and One was uh, credibility, and the other was accountability mm. and I thought the credibility required me to live in Scotland uh, to live in an area where I could easily get to the hills be part of a, a Scottish hill running club um, and with that credibility came accountability so I was writing about events and people and places um, and certainly with the people they're, they're people I have to face up to the next week or you know, all the people that are in this book, oh, I'm going to see them all again this summer. Um, and they're not my friends. I've, I've treated them uh, with sort of a, a journalistic di- distance. Uh, but I'm accountable to them. I'm not just going to disappear uh, to London. And certainly with me doing, not just Ramsey's Ram, but the racing, I, I think a degree of credibility 
was required. It wasn't just me talking the talk. I was literally going out and demonstrating that I could um, do the things that the people I was writing about were also doing. So you're now Edinburgh-based, Johnny, um, but you spent several years living in London. What do you think the mountains offer a runner that the roads cannot? I, I mean, yeah, first of all, I think, I think running's fantastic, whether you're running on the road or trail or, or running up the mountains. I think for me, and I think people who also go to hills, it's that sense of complete detachment, complete detachment from normal life that I, I don't feel like I, I get on the road anymore. You go to the hills and it's a place that's just free of commercialism and it's just a place where running's a little bit harder and a little bit more challenging and you have to be a bit more confident and a bit more confident uh, to be able to do it. And it doesn't mean everyone can't do it, but um, you need to feel confident, confident enough to do it. And I just have a feeling when you're running in the hills, uh, the experience of running is wonderful anyway, isn't it? But the experience of running in the hills magnifies um, uh, those sensations. And there's been so many times I've been out to see sunsets or sunrises or run through the night or seeing wildlife, etc. And you realize how lucky you are to be able to go to the hills um, uh, and see these things. And, of course, mountain landscape is just innately inspiring. So for me to be able to combine mountains and hills and running, um, to me, those two things, or those, those things are just, um, indivisible. To me, there, there is not running without mountains, and there, there is not mountains without running. Well, I think um, a lot of people are starting to agree with you, Johnny. Particularly, when we look at what's happening to Scotland in in September with the Sky Running World Championships uh, coming your way. Do you feel that we're about to experience a bit of a golden age of mountain running north of the border? Uh, I mean, yes, yeah, so the Sky Running World Champs are held in Glencoe um, in September. It's certainly a real coup for Scotland. Uh, it's only in its fourth year uh, Sky Running in Scotland. Uh, Golden Age, uh, possibly. Uh, it, it's hard for me to judge. I mean, it's only becoming more and more popular. That popularity is inevitably limited by the fact that sport is is quite hard, um, and you know there, there can be as many uh, you know, inventions or, or aids or gadgets in, in running, uh, but you know you can never make running up a hill any easier. Yeah, um, and so I, I think the popular, popularity is limited simply by it being a hard thing. It's not parkrun, for example. Um, but I think I think the popularity is a good thing, and I think that the role of Hills should be to inspire people and to give some people something to aspire to. You know, we do live in a bit of an insipid world, don't we, where our heroes are often sort of celebrities, and I think if people can find inspiration in the mountains, that's a good thing. So whether that leads to a golden age of mountain running, I don't know. But there are certainly more people doing it, um, and there are more and more events. That's a gear, maybe not mountain running, but a geared around hills uh, that might be more better described as trail running, trail in inverted commas. I think just touching on the whole notion of commercialisation, and you sort of spoke briefly about. Uh, mountain running being sort of separate from road running and the fact that you can escape that. I mean, you've got things like guided tours of the Bob Graham round now, and would you say there's a danger of mountain running being commercialised in any way? Uh, I mean, yeah, of course, mountain running is being commercialised, and I'm much to blame as anyone else. I mean, I've written a book about the subject. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm part of the problem. Um, yeah, there is more money coming into sport because it's becoming more popular, and that's just inevitable. You think about Bob Graham Round being, being guided tours. I think each each of their own. If people are prepared to pay for it, mm. then 
um, that's okay. There's been criticism recently about about how like, trods sort of informal footpaths are being created on the Bob Graham round and how that's a bad thing. I, I, I can't see how anything related to the Bob Graham round could ever be a bad thing. <laughs> As I said before, with, with being inspired or um, people having aspirations, if people are seeing running around the hills for 24 hours as a good thing, I don't think it matters if they're doing it guided or if they're doing it solo and supported. You know, it really is each to their own. Isn't that the beauty of the hills? We should be able to use them as we wish. Of course, we don't want them being commercialised to the extent that, they're, that the whole point of going to the mountains is, is ruined. Um, but, you know, I think if mountains are going to be more popular, commercialism is inevitably going to follow on, which is, of course, odds with the ethos of the sports. Yeah, I guess so. It's it's kind of that kind of simplicity and something kind of pure about mountain running that I think maybe feels under threat by those kind of developments. Um, there's some great physical benefits from, from being out in that kind of uh, landscape, but I think a lot of people are heading to wild places also for for mental health. Do you get a sense that that's a big motivation uh, for heading to the mountains to, to run or walk? Yeah, I mean, yeah, people are starting to say that, you know, whether that's a mother who... You know, we've got, or a father has got young children and just needs to get out the door to escape for half an hour. Um, whether that's someone with a high pressure job, for example, someone I spoke to uh, is the chief executive of Aberdeenshire Council. Um, I used to chat with Jim Savage for the book. Mm. So you know, he's, he's got a, he's running a multi-million-pound business, and for him, hill running is his is his escape. But obviously, good for his mental health. Uh, so to me personally, personally, I'm not I'm not consciously aware of running in the hills helping my mental health but subconsciously what well, of course it is of course it is mm. um, and I think certainly when you're doing things like Ramses Round or things that are really technical or things in bad weather or things at night um, there's that sense that nothing matters at all but the next step mm. the next handhold and the next thing you do and, and when you're so concentrated you're in this in this state of flow mm. where time and distance just becomes irrelevant. I, I was running just a few days ago in the Cairngorms and some of my colleagues from school there, I'd been, I'd been out for three and a half hours, and about 20 miles or 19 miles in the hills and I came back and these people couldn't believe what I'd done but yeah. to me it, it didn't feel that long because I was so focused on basically not falling over yeah. and I said focused on the, just the next step the, the next bit of rock, the next bit of screen and just being very much in the moment where, where time and distance you know, largely gets pushed to one side, mm. it doesn't feel like that on the road. Sometimes ten, you know, a, a, a five, 5K can feel like purgatory on the road sometimes. Yeah, I think you're right. It's, it's, it can be less kind of immersive. I think there's something very immersive about um, kind of off-road running, maybe, like you say, because you need to be, for, for safety reasons, <laughs> you need to be in the moment. Often when you're running at night and it's just you and the beam of the head torch, mm. that's the world narrows to such an extent that everything else has to be pushed out. The worries about family or money or your job or other things like everything else just gets pushed out, and you, and you just focus on that, that you know, the moment and, and, and just just being. I think that's that's true, and I think I mean to sort of to take it another level. I mean, mountain running is quite an insular sport. Um, and that often can come across as perhaps a little unfriendly to newcomers. I know that the fell running community is quite sort of insular. 
Um, is that justified, though? Is that reputation really a thing, or is it just everyone's running their own race? I was interviewed a chap for the book some years ago, and I wanted to record him, like we are now. Yeah. And he said, no, <clears> I'm a hill runner, and I'm an introvert, therefore I do not want to be recorded. So I was back to old-school shorthand notes on a piece of paper. Um, and I sort of agreed with him at the time, but, but at the same time, I came to my own definition of hill runners, and I call them introverted extroverts. <laughs> you know, to run up and down a hill in bad weather and to risk descent, etc. There's got to be something a bit more unusual about your character. Mm. Um, but I, I think the people who run can appear to be quite insular. But I think that insular—I said, you know—I think that introvertedness actually disguises the extrovert. Certainly, uh, you know. Certainly with the English scene, I remember going to race at Pendle. Right. It's not a criticism of the English scene, but I remember running, racing at Pendle and feeling, you can hear me talk now, I, you know, I don't talk with a, a Lancastrian or a Yorkshire accent, and going to Pendle and feeling totally foreign because no one sounded like I sounded. Mm. Um, it felt really quite parochial. A wonderful race, wonderful spirit that the race was running, but it felt quite parochial. I felt really quite alien in my own country, in England. In Scotland, I suppose... The argument I make in the book as well that hill running is Scotland's national minority sport. People are doing it in, doing it in Shetland and Orkney and the Western Isles. They're doing it in the middle of Edinburgh. They're doing it in the borders. They're doing it um, across the central belt and the Highlands, Aberdeenshire. Old people are doing it. Young people are doing it. Men are doing it. Women are doing it. Women are often beating the men. Um, it's a sport that everyone can take part in. And certainly mm. in Scotland, I think it's extraordinarily friendly. And you'll finish a race and you'll be standing there eating a load of cakes and drinking a cup of tea, and you'll be standing next to the guy or the woman who, who won the race, and you wouldn't know they've won the race uh, because uh, people are really low-key, mm. um, and it's just very simple. Um, there's no yeah ego, that would be the right word, there's no sort of ego, the, the people who are the best. In fact, they are probably the most introverted people who are at the very top of the sport. Mm. So who, who are some of the kind of um, forgotten heroes of, of Scottish mountain running that we would... That we would do well to remember. I, I don't know if forgotten the word, but just sort of unknown. Mm. Um, if the example, you know, um, Angela Mudge, who was formerly with two club feet, uh, literally her feet were pretty much uh, facing in and facing, uh, pointing up, mm. and she had spent two and a half years uh, with her feet in bandages to, to correct them. And when she was 30, 30 years after she was born, um, she became a world champion in 2000. So, you know, a remarkable yeah, well. A woman overcoming extraordinary adversity. Um, there's a guy called Finney Wilde, who people may want to know about. He's probably Scotland's preeminent hill runner. He, his big goal was to become the fastest person to traverse the Coolin Ridge on Sky. And he got to the end of this ridge and he'd broken the record and everything was in place. But when he got to the end, he had a niggling doubt that something wasn't quite right. Um, and he, he, he wondered if he'd touched one of the summits because if he hadn't touched the summit, he hadn't officially done it. Right. He ended and he. he, he retraced his steps sort of in, in the glen and came back up to the mountain and thought he might, he might have missed. And he got to the top and he realised that he hadn't touched the summit. But in terms of not touching the summit, it was literally he had passed within a few metres of, of Summit Cairn. So we're talking five or to ten seconds of time that he, he gained from this. Um, but for him, you know, he couldn't claim this record. So he, he's a good example of, of the ethos of the sport. Nothing matters more than just doing things um, correctly. 
Yeah, there's some real integrity there, isn't there? I mean, almost to a kind of yeah. almost unbelievable levels. That I mean, yeah, it, it didn't matter to anyone. Yeah, and, and I guess another a, a genuine un, un, unknown hero. Um, one thing here is guy called Glenn Jones. And this guy ekes out a semi-reclusive existence in Wigtownshire in South West Scotland. He, I, I've never met anyone who, who just does things for the sake doing them. So he became the first guy in 2002 to run ramps around in winter and he did it in 55 hours in classic conditions and, and he wasn't the sort of guy to wait for optimum conditions i.e. not too much snow and it not being too cold. You know, he went when the conditions were diabolical and five hours to cover 60 miles and, and the, the quote that he said to me uh, was that he wrote down actually in one of his reports he said the, the, the glory is in the doing not in the having done and that was something that I really took on board um, in my own efforts and still do now, the sense that in this sort of selfie culture, in this sort of self-congratulatory culture that we live in, there's not enough of people like Lynn Jones just getting on with doing stuff just for the sake of it. So purely motivated by your own satisfaction, um, not motivated by sharing it, writing about it. And I, I'm, you know, I'm as guilty of that as everyone else, but doing it because you want to do it because it, 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 it's something that will make you happy um, and I, I think you know that is, is the appeal of it, it gives people that level of satisfaction yeah that's great um, without inviting an influx of people into the mountains um, just a few of your favourite places and races in Scotland to run I think so it comes back to an earlier point you talk about commercialisation I think we choose to commercialise places if we choose to all go and race there. But I think you know, my favourite memories of, of being in Scotland and being hills is not racing; it's just running. Um, I think I was in the Kangaroos last week; they're fantastic. Certainly, the, the 23 Munros, the Ramsey Brown, um, well, which would be the word. You know, these hills bewitched me for years, and they. You know, I lie in bed at night. I think of these hills, and I think of how to. The best line to send them, or the best line to get on them, and you know the details are fixed and they're lodged in my mind. But in terms of, I guess, favourite hills, they're not the most dramatic. But my local hills, Penton. So I live in Edinburgh. I'm within two miles. I can be in Penton Hills, and I love, I love. I used to live in London, so I love the idea of knowing hills really, really well. So I go in them every single week, and I watch the seasons change, and watch the bracken come up, and then die, and the snow comes. And, I see the changing colour of the gorse, um, and I, I, I love these, these you know, fairly low, fairly benign hills. But just being able to know them, understand their moods, um, just uh, a privilege, an absolute privilege. That's great, Johnny. Um, us, with your book, it's, it's out now, right? So if people are interested in the mountains of calling, they can they can pick it up at their local bookshop or online. How do they do it? Yes, yeah, so the mountains calling, as, as I said, which is the story of running in Scotland. Um, it's available all the usual outlets. So if it's not your if it's not your local bookshop, you can always ask for it in. Um, I know Warstone are stocking it fairly extensively, and all the usual online outlets. Um, it's available there. That's great. Well, Johnny, thank you very very much for coming on uh, the Runners World podcast, telling us a little bit more about your book and also the the mountain running scene in Scotland. It's been great to chat to you. That's all right. Well, I hope, I hope some more people can get on the hills and, and feel um, the, the way some of us feel. This is the Runner's World Podcast.
In the current issue of Runner's World, we commissioned a feature looking at why recreational distance running is so white. Kerry McCarthy, the commission editor, is here to discuss some of the findings. Afternoon. How are you? Yeah, good. Very good. well, thank you. So, Kerry, running by rights uh, should be the most uh, inclusive sport in the world, but it's not, is it? No, it's it's quite surprising. Although, having said that, not that surprising, considering we commissioned a feature on this, and we wouldn't have done that <laughs> if we <laughs> suspected that it was that everything was hunky dory <laughs> in the running scene. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so there's, but some really interesting stuff came back from this. The, I think the simplest way to boil it down is that everybody agrees that while running is probably the most accessible sport out there, that old trope about all you need is a pair of trainers and a bit of willpower. That while that's certainly true, once you scratch below the surface, there are there are further barriers to entry for. Uh, ethnic minority groups. Right. One of them being uh, lack of role models. It boils down to about two. One of them is lack of role models in the uh, mainstream media, in the advertising, the way that these runners are targeted or not targeted. They just, the feedback we got was that they're not seeing themselves represented in from the brands and the way the brands are marketing to them. Right. Uh, and the other reason is uh, it's kind of socioeconomic, really. As much as uh, you don't need much money to get going, I think certainly with first-generation immigrants, they feel as though running is is luxury. And actually, one of the... I'm just going to read a little bit out from the feature from, from one of the contributors who said, for some communities, sport is right down their list. You've got education, you've got religion, you've got work and family. Running clubs could do a lot more in terms of empathising and understanding this. It's not just about promoting runs, it's about creating an environment where people feel welcome. And we went on to a guy called Harmander Singh, who's uh, one of the Runners World Pacers at the London Marathon. He uh, started the running group Sikhs in the City. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's coached 300 um, runners of, of from a BAME background. And he kind of just added to that and said, look, particularly when it comes to the Asian community... But anyone who's come to Britain for a better economic livelihood, they've worked their butts off to get established and they don't value leisure as much as the white indigenous community. Leisure is a luxury for those who can afford it. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? You actually think about running like if you've had a very hard life, physically hard life in your spare time, are you likely to go and or what little spare time you have think, oh, I'd like a 10K out of this. I can I can get I get that. Yeah. I think what we're seeing is that as much as, you know, certainly in the magazine we talk about things like it can be a stress reliever, it's head time, anybody can do it. And all of those things are true. But there are sections of society that don't see it like that. They are quite running with, well, this is a frippery. Yes. Okay. You know, yeah. and and who are we to, to, to tell them otherwise? It's they, they're so busy trying to keep their heads above water. And there were some really interesting statistics in the piece about some of the poorest uh, boroughs and communities and cities in the UK. Mm. And when you looked at how poor they were, there was a direct correlation to how unhealthy they were and how little exercise they did, not just running, but any kind of exercise. They were just, you know, without wanting to kind of dramatise it, they were just kind of too busy trying to stay alive, really. Mm. I think as well, when you take into cost of living... If you're taking yeah. mo- taking money when it comes to the point where you're putting food on the table, what f- what that food is is the cheapest food you can get. That has a direct impact on health, but also yeah. that's where your money's going. That's what you're spending it on. It's not a matter of like I've got extra for running shoes or kit or those sorts of things. So the, the sort of the, the two things kind of go hand in hand slightly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think so. Um, 
do you get a sense of what we might do to to redress some of those problems? I think there's some stuff being done. It seems to me, having looked into this, that we're we're at a stage where the lack of diversity is is being recognised, and mm. people are starting to scratch their heads and, and straight their chins and go, hmm, "We just noticed this. We need to do something about this." Yeah, I wouldn't say that we're too far along in terms of initiatives, uh, but there are there are some things being done. Um, you will remember Donna Fraser, possibly, who ran in the Sydney Olympics in the 400 metres final with Cathy Freeman. You know, yeah, she, right, yeah. The yeah. Aboriginal runner, she ran in the, the, the weird kind of bodysuit. Yeah. She was carrying the hopes of not just Australia, but an Indigenous people mm. on her back. And, and I think Donna Fraser came fourth, I think, in that race. But she um, is now working as a diversity inclusion officer for, for Sport England, right. which is the first time they've ever had a role like that. They kind of created it. Not for her, but they realised the need of the role, and she said, "Right, I want to get involved in that." And yeah. she thinks there should be a much better emphasis, link placed between sport and and the health service in this country. Mm. You know, we're starting to realise how good it is for your mental health. Obviously, how good it can be for your physical health, mm. kind of heart disease and, and obesity and things like that. Yeah. And she just wants us to keep relentlessly banging the drum on this. Many of the listeners may have read or seen chat in the last six, twelve months about. Um, trying to get exercise prescribed on the NHS instead of just being a pill-popping nation. Social pres- prescribing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Instead of there being a pill for everything, it's like, actually, c- could this be solved by exercise? What type of exercise? What intensity? Um, go and do it. There's talk now of, of Park Run being being prescribed on the NHS. Yeah, yeah Kate, uh, Kate was mentioning that um, early on. And I think, yeah, I mean, that, all that stuff feels like a more enlightened way of dealing with those problems, doesn't it? It's kind of it's progressive. It's progressive, yeah. Rather than sort of just as you say, a prescribed here's a bottle of this and take it and yeah. that sort of approach. This is the Runner's World Podcast. Harmander, um, who we talked about a few minutes ago, thinks that there's not necessarily a problem when it comes to the grassroots. He says, look, when you start out in running, it's the most non racially discriminating sport you can imagine. But as soon as you go into any kind of supervisory role, it's like the mentality of the old working men's club kicks in. You're not made to feel welcome. And people make presumptions about where you come from. Uh, he thinks that, you know, that if you get into anywhere where you're going to be a coach mm. or a chief executive, then you just don't have a chance. And certainly the statistics back that up. Um, I've got a study here from Sporting Equals, which is a UK-based charity in 2016, that found that across 68 sports... Uh, 68 sports boards, rather, including national governing bodies, there was just one BAME chairman, one CEO, and 26 board members, 4% of the total. Only 3% of coaches were from ethnic minority backgrounds. 3%. So when you go back to that question of role models and who do I look up to? Yeah, staggeringly low, isn't it? Staggeringly low amount of that. Yeah. I mean, one of the questions we've been asking readers, and I guess it comes into our sort of 25th anniversary uh, stuff coming up, is where they think running might be in, in 25 years' time. Do you see this situation changing quickly? Is kind of BAME running a bit of a sleeping giant? Or do you think that actually this is going to be the way it is for some time? Uh, I don't think I don't think it's going to be a sleeping giant or it's suddenly going to awaken a massive force of, of, of BAME runners. But I think the numbers will be more evened out. I think that, like I said, now there's a, recogni- there's a recognition that there's a problem people will start doing things the london marathon uh have definitely recognized this i think theirs is one of the 
one of the stories that we should pay heed to, they launched an event this year, uh, which we paced at called The Big Half uh, in London. And what London Marathon did was they actually, they got Mo Farah um, to kind of spearhead the campaign and they actively went after the Bane community. They, They ran a campaign which was aimed at recruiting a field that they say reflected the cultural diversity of London. And the way they went about that, they had teams, I think they called them outreach teams, which worked with community groups, they worked with sports clubs and faith institutions in the four host boroughs, which I think were um, Tower Hamlets, Southwark, Lewisham and Greenwich. And in those boroughs, 69% of the residents are from ethnic minorities. So they offered discounted entry of, of £10, um, which I think they offered that was to offer to a total of 7,500 runners. Yeah. Um, and they just they banged the drum, they made them aware that this event was happening... They encouraged them to take part in it, and they offered them a discount. Um, the the upshot was that instead of London Marathon, say normally the events that they put on, because they have events, as we know, other than just the London Marathon, sure. normally in the field, that an average field for one of their events, 8% of the people will be from a BAME background, and right. in this race, that figure rose to 18%. Yeah, huge, isn't it? Yeah. So for a first go, that's... More than double. More yeah. than double. Yeah. You know, it shows that, that, that paying some attention to people who feel like you're not really speaking their language can, can pay dividends if you do it in the right way. Yeah. Kerry, thank you very, very much for, um, for coming no on to speak about um subject. Like I said, it's a huge subject and not, not one that we can completely do justice to in, in 20 minutes. But we would love to hear uh, from our listeners. Tell us what you think. As running as inclusive as it should be, as diverse, uh, let us know at uh, podcast at runnersworld.co.uk. Actually, I just wanted to add to that as well. If you have got a story, if you know of a group or a community in your area that is tackling this or you think we've completely got this wrong and it's more inclusive and you've got examples to prove why, we don't intend this one piece that we've done to be the end of the subject. We want to keep coming back to it. We want to gather information on it and we would love to hear about any anecdotes or stories you've got, both good and bad. Yeah, so drop us an email, podcast at runnersworld.co.uk. For more from Runners World, head to runnersworld.co.uk. So that brings us to the end of this month's Runners World podcast. I want to say a big thank you to our guests, Kate Carter, Johnny Muir and Kerry McCarthy, and to Scramble Studios in Soho where this was recorded. For more from Runners World, please visit the website, runnersworld.co.uk, where you'll find news, reviews, interviews and everything else from the wide world of running. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Uh, Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you next month. The Runner's World podcast was recorded at Scramble Studios, Soho. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.